Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, warm welcome to First Move. Fantastic to have you with us this Friday, coming up over the next hour. Devastation in Derna. We take you there for a first-hand look at the destruction after this week's catastrophic flooding in Libya. Plus, Putin's partners, the Russian president meeting now with President Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus following the summit meetings with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. Kim, by the way, still in Russia, continues his military-focused tour. All the details coming up. And a historic strike for the first time ever. The powerful United Auto Workers Union calling a down tools at all big three U.S. automakers at once. A live report from Michigan in just a moment's time. And a quick Friday check of Wall Street's price action. U.S. stocks are on track for a slightly lower open on the last trading day of the week. There's time yet, of course. Take a look at Europe. That's in the green following a positive lead during the Asia session too, where stocks closed for the most part higher, helped along by better than expected Chinese retail sales data and industrial production numbers. Nikkei and the Kospi there in South Korea, the outperformers. Okay, let's begin now in Libya, where at least 5,000 people have lost their lives in massive flooding. Those are the latest figures by Doctors Without Borders. Many more, of course, are still missing. The UN aid chief calling it, quote, a terrible tragedy in which climate and capacity has collided. Germana Karadze reports from Derna. We've all covered wars, natural disasters before, but none of us have seen anything like this. I mean, we drove into Derna late last night uh, and even during nighttime in the dark, you could still see the destruction. And now during the day, this is just utter, utter destruction. And it really feels like you're walking through a war zone, like massive bombs had gone off here. And this is what people here would tell you. You know, you've got several cities along the Libyan coast that, that were impacted by Storm Daniel, by the flooding over the weekend. But nothing like this, what people are describing here as this catastrophe. What happened in Derna, of course, as you know, is those two dams that burst and you have the floodwaters that swept through the heart of the city, washing out entire buildings, neighborhoods, uh, homes, infrastructure, families, and brought it all down here to the sea, to the Mediterranean. I mean, this is just it's very difficult for us to really move the camera around because of the communication issues the communications were disrupted in the city so our connection is not very stable but looking into the sea what we see here is people's lives in there you see homes you see door frames windows furniture clothes cars everything and they are still right now searching four dead bodies, bodies that are still washing up on the shore six days 
after this tragedy happened. Right now, Libyan officials are saying about 5,000 people have been killed. There are still 10,000 people unaccounted for. And officials that we've been speaking to say they don't expect to find any more survivors right now. And what you've got here, where we are, is all these volunteers uh, from different parts of the country who are working, who are trying to assist in this recovery effort. And it is such a tough task. They're telling us they're not equipped to deal with something like this. They don't have the means and capabilities to do this. Um, one young man I was speaking to just a short time ago, just describing how people were just tying ropes to themselves and holding each other as they would dive into uh, the sea and start pulling out body after body. This one young man told me in one day he pulled 40 bodies uh, just by himself. Um, and right now, the volunteers here are saying, look, they need heavy equipment. You've got cars that are stuck in there and, and they don't know how many people are still in there. They are worried that there are people still dead bodies, of course, in these cars and they want support. They want help. They want heavy equipment. They want divers. They want diving equipment to try and get uh, recover as many bodies as they can. They have had some international support. We have seen some uh, teams here on the ground. The Turks were already out on a rubber boat just a short time ago. You have helicopters in the air, but it is nowhere near enough. There. Now, speculation is growing over the whereabouts of China's defense minister, Li Shengfu, who hasn't been seen in public for more than two weeks. And according to reports, several American officials believe he's been placed under investigation by Beijing. Mark Stewart joins us now from Beijing. Mark, I'm sure information is scarce. What more can you tell us? Indeed, Julia. And here we are again talking about another moment of intrigue concerning the Chinese cabinet, this time, as you mentioned, with the absence of the defense minister. His absence came up during a briefing today at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs during its regular briefing. Spokeswoman Mao Ning was asked about this and her response simply, quote, I'm not aware of the situation. To give you a look at the calendar, Li was last seen about two weeks ago here in Beijing at a conference dealing with peace and security issues. Before that, he was on a road trip to both Russia and Belarus in which he met with his Russian counterpart on that visit. Some context, though, the reason why we are paying attention, it was in July that we saw the sudden departure and disappearance of the Chinese foreign minister, a much more high profile position. Uh, but his abrupt departure, again, is raising questions about President Xi Jinping, his leadership and the lack of transparency. Now, the defense secretary job certainly is not as high profile as that of the defense minister. But if we look at this broader storyline about these disappearances, it certainly raises question, uh, questions. And Julia, I should finally point out that his job posting, his biography, the information surrounding him, it is still very much on the Chinese government website. Uh, it has not been removed. What that tells us, there's a number of ways to look at it. Uh, when the foreign minister was removed, immediately uh, some of that information was taken away. But for now, at least officially on that website, the defense minister is still listed as having that position, Julia. Mark Stewart there. Thank you for joining us from Beijing. Now, hot on the heels of talks with North Koreans Kim, who's still in Russia. Today, President Putin is meeting Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko in Sochi. 
And meanwhile, on the front lines, Ukraine's military is reporting that it's retaken a key village south of Bakhmut and in its words, quote, liquidated the Russian garrison there. Melissa Bell joins us now from Ukraine. And Melissa, I think we're all very familiar with Bakhmut and the battles that have taken place there. But just explain the importance of this specific apparent success. That's right, Julia. Bakhmut has been uh, the longest battle in this war so far. Uh, And all around uh, that uh, town, battles continue to rage as uh, Ukrainians try and wrestle that whole area on the eastern front back from Russian forces. Now, Andrivka is a little village that's to the south of Bakhmut. What we understand from Ukrainian authorities, and there had been early claims that it had been recaptured, immediately denied because the fighting had continued. What we've had this morning is confirmation, Julia, from the Russian, from the Ukrainian side, uh, that this village is, they say now, fully back in their hands. What they explain is that it was a lightning strike, two days of operations. Very quickly, they say, this brigade of theirs managed to encircle Russian forces, cutting them off and capturing them, liberating, they say, this village entirely. And of course, that's important, Julia, because we've been following uh, the very small but significant gains that have been made by the southern counteroffensive, that the eastern counteroffensive should be making gains, say Ukraine, uh, along that line and to the south of Bakhmut, uh, is significant and would represent something of a victory, however small territorially that gain, since it gives Ukrainians the ability to try and push that wedge forward and make further gains. It is, of course, important for morale and momentum as well. And remember that uh, gains have been uh, few and far between over the course of this now more than three-month counteroffensive. Now, this uh, announcement comes, as you say, even as President Putin's been uh, going through these diplomatic engagements with what few allies he has, Kim Jong-un, and of course now uh, uh, Alexander Lukashenko, the Belarusian president that he's meeting with in Sochi. And we've just been hearing uh, from a press conference there of Vladimir Putin claiming uh, that there are foreign mercenaries now fighting in Ukraine, that a number of them have been captured, uh, that he, for his part, the Russian side doesn't need foreign mercenaries because of the 300,000 conscripts that have recently signed up to help fight uh, Russia's war. So on one hand, Ukrainian gains on the ground, uh, Russian boasts diplomatically uh, away from uh, the front lines. Uh, That is where we are uh, this Friday afternoon. I think it is important, though, that Ukraine is able uh, to claim these gains uh, after so long and so little to show for this counteroffensive so far, Julia. Yes, important to mark the moment. Melissa Bell, thank you. Now, no deal between the big automakers and their unionised workers, and this is the result. It's an unprecedented strike against General Motors, Ford and Stellantis. About 13,000 workers walked off the job at midnight. More could join them. Union members are demanding an immediate 20% pay rise, better benefits and more job protections. U.S. President Joe Biden is expected to address the contract negotiations in the coming hours, too. Vanessa Yakevich joins us now from outside the Ford Michigan Assembly plant. Vanessa, you've done a brilliant job. You've spoken to the GM CEO, Mary Barry. You've also been speaking to those workers that are on the picket lines now effectively striking. What's your sense of um, how this might be resolved? Yeah, and Julia, we actually moved from the Ford plant inside to GM headquarters in just the last hour because we spoke to CEO Mary Barra just a short time ago about this strike, this historic strike that has started uh, at 12 a.m. We are seeing people on the picket lines across 
three states striking three different companies, as you mentioned, something we have never seen before. And this is a targeted strike. They're going to be going plant by plant to try to keep the companies guessing. There is no timeline for this. We do not know if this is going to last days, weeks, months. According to one analyst, this is not a de-escalation. This is an escalation. I did speak to Mary Barra, the CEO of General Motors, just moments ago, where she expressed her frustration with not being able to reach a deal with the union by the deadline. Listen. We have a very compelling uh, offer on the table. Um, I'm very frustrated um, because I, I think we had an offer that resonates with our people. It's a historic offer. Uh, gross wage increases of 20% that compound to 21%, maintaining world-class health care. There's several aspects as well. But I think one thing that's most important is job security. And, you know, we're in an incredibly exciting time in this industry right now as we make the transformation from internal combustion engine vehicles to electric vehicles. And uh, General Motors is well poised. We have a, a pipeline coming. And so when we look at that and we look at how this could, um, you know, delay that, it's at a critical juncture. So we have a, a, a deal that I think is very, very important. That proposal sits at the table. Our team is ready to be at the table again. They're waiting. And we need to get back. We need the UAW leadership to get back to the table, get these issues resolved so we can get people back to work. Now, General Motors may believe that they have submitted a historic offer. Ford and Stellantis have said the same thing, but the union doesn't agree. And that is why they did not come to an agreement by 12 midnight. And also earlier this morning, I was speaking to workers who were on the picket lines who shared in that same sentiment, saying that they do not believe that their wages are keeping up with the profits of these companies. They build these vehicles in order for these companies to be successful. Now, we will see see UAW President Sean Fain at a rally at 5 p.m. here in Detroit with Bernie Sanders. We know that there are no negotiations happening today between the automakers and the union. Mary Barrett also told me that she spoke to the president, President Biden, yesterday and has been keeping the administration up to date about what's been going on. We expect to hear from the president uh, in a few hours just about how he is feeling and the administration is feeling about these breakdowns in negotiations and the fact that this is just a one of this strike. Just three plants are being impacted. The union has made it very clear that they will take further steps if they believe that the automakers are not continuing to negotiate in good faith. Julia? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what President Biden, self-declared pro-union president, has to say about this. And um, let's hope they all get back to the negotiating yeah. table soon. Vanessa, great job. Thank you so much. Vanessa Yakevich there. Thank you. Okay, straight ahead, art imitating life. A new movie on the GameStop short-selling saga makes it to the big screen. Do you remember this? That was Roaring Kitty. Well, we'll talk to the co-writers. Plus, a colossal task, bringing one of the Earth's biggest creatures back to life. A woolly story coming up for you later. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and to one of the most incredible business stories I think I've covered on First Move was the GameStop saga. Cast your mind back a few years ago. Remember, we were emerging from the pandemic and the share price of a video game brand went wild or retailer behind it. 
retail investor called Keith Gill, a.k.a. Roaring Kitty, who decided he saw value in the ailing firm. Now, that snowballed into a David versus Goliath story where a bunch of smaller investors, many of them over the Internet, took on some of the biggest hedge funds in the world who were predicting it would go bankrupt. Well, now it's been made into a movie, and here's a clip. Uh, I'm concerned about it deeply. I'm calling it the ultimate short suite. 120%. That if you go short in some of these elaborate options trades, you can lose money to infinity. Oh, Christine Romans. And I'm pleased to say Lauren Shukablom and Rebecca Angelo are the co-writers and also the executive producers of that movie. And they join us now. Ladies, welcome to the show. Um, it's very exciting to have you on. It's a fun movie. I'll call it that. Um, you know, when you were introducing it at the screening, you said you know, you've written many scripts, but this one uh, was special for many reasons. And I think we all lived it real time. Um, and this movie came to the cinemas incredibly fast. Um, Rebecca, just start there. What was the message, the story that you wanted to bring to, to viewers? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very easy to look around the world right now and feel despondent, feel despair. So much seems broken and so much seems hopeless. And here was one story where people who were feeling, I know Lauren and I were feeling pretty lonely, pretty isolated, pretty powerless at the height of the pandemic. And here was a movement. Um, it didn't fall along those conventional left and right, red and blue lines where people all over the world, all over the country came together, found a new power in joining their voices as one and um, really uh, notched a victory. Um, we're under no illusions that Wall Street has been changed forever by this, but it is a remarkable story, and we really feel like it was worthy um, of capturing on film. Lauren, it is a human story, but it's also about Internet populism, I think, the people power. And we're talking, I think, millions of people in this case that sort of lined behind uh, Roaring Kitty, as he was known over the Internet. Um, but the subject itself actually isn't that easy to explain. I mean, you, you use phrases that we recognise, payment for order flow, um, short selling, fundamentals, but somehow you had to distill all that to explain the story, but also present what's a very human story, I think, to, to Rebecca's point. That's right. I mean, to us, this was a very human story. It was a story of one man who kind of, through his belief, led an incredible movement. And we wanted to really focus on the emotional aspects of it. You know, it's really too narrow a lens to look at the story over just money, right? Over who made money, who lost money. Of course, that's part of it. But this was a movement that meant so much more to people. It was a way for people to feel big at a time when everyone felt small and to really be a part of something. And there's no price tag you can put on, you know, feeling part of something that changes the world or at least changes the conversations we're having. And you know, this is a moment where we're seeing the power of collective action everywhere. We're here in our capacity as producers of the movie, but of course we're also the writers of it and we are on strike. So we are happy to be able to use this platform to amplify the message of our guild, which is exactly the message of the, the GameStop movement, which is that you cannot have fairness without transparency. Yes, and even the... Go on. No, sorry, Lauren. Oh, even though PFOP is, you know, not usually a topic in Hollywood movies, we feel like it's a great responsibility and a joy to kind of spread financial literacy a bit more with this film. 
Do you think that came out in the movie, though? I mean, I, I laughed a lot, I have to say, this idea that perhaps getting involved in speculative bubbles, because um, that's what this was, actually isn't a good idea. Because I, I guess it, I was sort of walking away and I was thinking about this, and I've thought about it a lot over the last couple of days, whether in some way there was a, a sort of glorification of that um, in a dangerous way. Because I remember when reporting on it, my heart was in my mouth that people were going to lose money. Mm-hmm. Yes, and of course that weighed heavily on us. And we have, you know, our, some characters lose money. The America Ferrera yeah. character in the movie ends up, you know, with a negative balance sheet. And I think it was important to us to show that most, you know, most of the time retail traders underperform the market. And this was a kind of exceptional story. Roaring Kitty, um, Keith Gill, not the most obvious and natural leader in this sense and, and brilliantly played as well by um, by Paul Dano, to, to your point. And I think what was well expressed in the movie as well was the fact that he was making everything so public. So it was that decision of um, having so many people behind him and then, oh, I've made so much money now. Should I, should I sell here or should I not? Um, how was it in terms of getting the information behind the characterizations, not just for him, but for everyone? Did you manage to meet these people, talk to these people and understand? Lauren and I met as reporters for the Wall Street Journal. We met in the newsroom there. So we have a strong background in financial journalism and Mm. just in the day-to-day shoe leather reporting. And that's what we did when we embarked on this story. We talked to many, many retail traders. We also talked to many, many folks in the hedge fund world and on Wall Street. We really feel like the North Star of any cinematic endeavor is a, a kind of radical empathy. It is our job to do everything we possibly can to get behind the eyes of every single character we depict on screen, not just the heroes or the villains. Um, and, and this movie doesn't fall on those lines anyway. Um, so, so we did our, our, our darndest to understand what makes these people tick, not just, not just to understand the, the kind of balance sheet issues of when they bought in and whether they sold high or whether they wrote it to the bottom, but really the emotional piece of the story, what leads a person who's maybe mm. never bought a stock before to buy one for the first time. Yeah, and the reasons why they held on in there as well. Um, mm-hmm. To your point, and you, you sort of made the cross-reference, I think, from Wall Street to, to Hollywood and, and the challenges there. Um, do, do you think in this case, murky things happened? And it, it is pure speculation, because as you said in the movie, um, the SEC, Congress, the courts decided that that there wasn't anything to see here. And, and you made that point. And the script is tightly written, but uh, one could argue that the inference is there. Yeah, I mean, our goal was to just, you know, tell the truth. That was what we wanted to do with this movie. It's very uh, tightly researched. We relied on those, you know, court, the, you know, discovery that came out in those lawsuits. Many of the lines spoken in that section of the film are actually verbatim real lines from text messages that came out at that time. Uh, We didn't dramatize, you know, any moments there. And, you know, the only note we got in the making of this movie was to tell the truth, whether people like it or not. (laughs) <laughs> that's where I'm going next because there were some that didn't like it whether I guess it's the characterization or the facts perhaps most importantly to your point about, about telling the truth I think perhaps the most vocal one um, Citadel and Ken Griffin yeah, and we're not sure uh, if anyone's had a chance to see the movie because of course it only opens in theaters today um, but uh, yeah, we um, we don't know any of this personally. We haven't heard anything directly from uh, Ken Griffin. 
Uh, Ken is a fascinating guy to us. He has done so much to shape the markets and he has so much control over the world that we live in. He's certainly had a very busy week. He is suing the IRS. He has subpoenaed journalists from a nonprofit news organization. Uh, he, he spent quite a bit of time yesterday on television talking about his new philanthropic initiative. And now, of course, here comes this movie. And like many fund managers, Ken Griffin has paid fines you know, to, to the SEC and FINRA over the years uh, and without having to admit fault. So you know, it must be very frustrating for someone like Ken Griffin, who's in control of so much, to not be in control of this movie. But you know, that's the thing about a Hollywood movie is you can't buy your way out of it. Okay, we're not going to litigate all the things that you mentioned there because I I don't have time. But um, I did speak or at least connect with um, Tom Clare, who's the attorney representing Citadel and the author of um, the letters to Sony complaining about some of the content, at least in the earlier scripts. Um, I'm going to read it for balance. The original script contained numerous fabrications and Citadel felt an obligation to flag those to Tony. Thanks to our letter, Sony corrected them and the final film did not include a number of falsehoods that would have been blatantly misleading to the audience. While it's a shame the final version still chose to sensationalise events through false implications and inaccuracies, we are glad our letter gave Sony the chance to correct some of its mistakes before the film was released. Ladies, you get your chance to respond to that. Is it over, I guess, based on that? Well, we just want to be very clear that Ken Griffin and his attorneys had absolutely no control over the final version of this film. The only person who did is Craig Gillespie, who had the final cut, our director. Um, and our mandate was always to tell the truth. That's that's the note we got. That's what we did. And those letters are based on a very early misappropriated draft of the script, you know, not even the shooting draft. And so many things obviously change in the course of making a movie, um, you know, when you're actually shooting it. That have nothing to do with Citadel or Ken Griffin. Yeah, I guess if I were speaking for their side, I would say, again, for balance, it is about truth, to your point, and getting mm-hmm. to the truth of, them, of the story. And, 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 and the we would say that the, the truth is bad enough. And viewers will watch and they will make their own decisions. Talk to me about, um, talk to me about the point that you've made about Hollywood, because ordinarily, you're writers, you, you would be on strike. Many of your colleagues are. You're exec producers of this show, therefore you can speak. There's another message here, I think, and I, I want you to have the time to make it. Yeah, I mean, this is a movie that very much is about uh, the need for transparency on Wall Street, also in Hollywood. And we feel that you can't have fairness without transparency. If you want to amplify the message of our guild, we're here as proud WGA members fighting for that transparency. Yeah. Okay. And this is the point that you can sell the movie, tell people to go and watch. It was an exciting saga I think but again I'll go back to the fact that if you're a finance geek it was just it was mesmerizing for that period of time but the movie is also tightly written the music is phenomenal Rebecca and I think you take full credit for that at least I've heard from a good source <laughs> which admittedly was your husband <laughs> um, why should people go and watch this movie I think that I, th- I think we would just add to what you said. We're very grateful for that endorsement. Um, it, it, it's also really a movie not for finance geeks. You don't ever have to have bought a stock. You don't have to care about the stock market to really key into the story and relate to the characters. And that's why we love it so much. It's really a human story. It's a story that tells us a lot about the world we live in now. And it gives you a ray of hope um, for how things could be a little bit better in the future. It's also a story about an ordinary man who found himself in extraordinary circumstances and rose to the challenge. I mean, that's Roaring Kitty, and he's a unique character that everyone should have the chance to watch. And he disappeared. 
I don't want to spoil yeah. the movie, but yeah. did he make money in the end, guys? It's a Do great question. Think he no, made money? no one knows where he is. I, I, have, I have a feeling he's still holding. <laughs> oh, gosh. Have we got the share price? Oh, <laughs> oh, to go back to the point about, yeah, my first boss in finance, greedy pigs make great bacon. It's like, take profit. <laughs> yes, at the right time, of course. Ladies, a huge pleasure. Thank you so much. Lauren Thank June you so much. And Rebecca Angelo, co-writers and exec producers of Dumb Money, out today. Thank you. All right, stay with CNN. Coming up, why French authorities think the iPhone 12 could be radioactive and what Apple may do to fix it. That's after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Friday and shares of GM and Ford under pressure. I think as you would expect, as the United Auto Workers Union begins a historic strike against all three big automakers here in the United States. Meanwhile, chip designer Arm climbing after soaring 25% on its first day of trade on the Nasdaq on Thursday. That's the price currently just above $66 a share. Now, Apple is trying to allay fears of unsafe radiation levels in its iPhone 12, planning a software update that will solve the issue, they say. This move comes after a French watchdog ordered an immediate halt of the iPhone 12 sales in the country on Tuesday, warning the device exceeded European radiation exposure limits. Anna Stewart, also a temporary nuclear physicist, apparently, <laughs> joins us on this story. Can a software update fix radiation issues? I mean, I can't answer that question. Tell us what, <laughs> what the concern is. And um, obviously, Apple are pushing back. Well, it feels like a bit of a climb down, climb down, I should say, from Apple, actually, because they said they contested the findings of France's National Frequency Agency from earlier in the week. They say that they meet all the SAR uh, regulations, but clearly it's come under pressure, not just in France, where they've banned sales of the iPhone 12, but I think from some other European countries as well, who said they were also concerned, given France's findings, uh, and that they could follow suit, essentially. So today, while Apple continues to say that the phone meets all SAR regulations and standards around the world for everyone out there. SAR is a measure of the rate of energy absorption of the body from a device that is being measured. That's as far as I can go on that. I am no expert. Um, And it has also released a software update. I do not know how exactly that helps, but clearly Apple is hoping it will and that it will appease France and that iPhone 12 uh, phones can go back on sale. For anyone that is worrying about radiation uh, and iPhone 12s, I will flag this, that at the time that the French agency kind of raised concerns on Tuesday, they also said said that this level is more than 10 times lower than the level at which there could be a health risk. And the World Health Organization has said in the past that to date and after much research performed, no adverse health effect has been causally linked with exposure to wireless technology. So I don't think we all need to, to panic. If you're still holding on to the iPhone 12, don't worry. Yeah, I think that's an important point to make as well. And that the, also the phone met the radiation threshold for devices kept in a jacket pocket or bag. So it also depends, I guess, on what the material is mm. relative to you. But um, yes, interesting and, and worth um, digging around a little bit more on that. Um, maybe they should just offer free upgrades, Anna. Do you see what I did there? <laughs> Yesterday we were talking about your beloved iPhone 11. How's your iPhone 11 doing, Anna? 
my iPhone 11. It's it's great. Um, I should be ashamed of myself for whinging on First Move yesterday about my my very old phone. It's a work phone, uh, and I deserve CNN really to have played me the world's smallest violin. Instead, though, the powers that be at CNN <laughs> pity me and my iPhone 11. And uh, an iPhone 14 is on order. That is breaking news coming into us right now. Uh, I, not an iPhone 15. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. I'm not ready. <laughs> Was any of that scripted? Are <laughs> you forced to say that? How, how big is your office, Anna? Should we, should we talk about your paycheck? Don't answer that. Let's go. Let's go. You would do an upgrade. You do sterling work on that phone, and you could have asked earlier to get an upgrade, and you didn't. How well, I did about on air. That? Well, yes. Like, I was trying to help you there. You've just dug another hole. Enjoy the new phone, <laughs> Stuart. Thank you so much for joining us. We're both very naughty. Still to come on First Move, is science fiction becoming a reality? The CEO of Colossus Biosciences joins us after the break to discuss efforts to bring back the woolly mammoth and why. Welcome back to First Move, or should I say welcome to Jurassic Park in the real world. No, we're not talking about movie magic. Colossus Biosciences is a genetic engineering firm working to resurrect the woolly mammoth, the Tasmanian tiger, and the dodo. The plan is de-extinction, or applying gene editing technology to rebuild the DNA of creatures that once walked the earth. But it's not just about bringing back the dodo. Scientists at the company are also aiming to preserve and protect living animals as well. And the work is already having a positive impact on orphaned elephants in Botswana. Joining us now to discuss all the details is Ben Lamb. He's the CEO of Colossus Biosciences. Ben, it is a huge honour to have you on the show. It's fascinating work that you're doing. You call yourselves the first de-extinction firm, but actually it is a lot bigger than that. Just give us what you are and what you're aiming for. Yeah, so I think a lot of people get excited about the woolly mammoth, the thylacine and the dodo in our de-extinction efforts, but we're really a species preservation company. And, and fundamentally, we are going to lose up to 50% of all biodiversity between now and 2050. And we're trying to build new tools and technology to not only bring back species, but can help existing critically endangered species. Yeah, I mean, this is the key to your point. We are expected to lose half of our biodiversity by 2050, and I'm worried. Um, so it is a way to perhaps preserve or, or if necessary, resurrect to the point. And it's not just about animals either, I, I guess. It's, our, it's plants for food production, carbon sequestration, uh, our ecosystem stability, Ben. It's, it's the world we live in. Yeah, biodiversity and biodiversity security is absolutely critical to ecosystem stability, which leads to food security, water safety, uh, you know, uh, so, many, so many different uh, groups of people rely on the land and the animals that uh, and the entire forest and ecosystems around them. And so losing that and that crippling will have a much larger effect than even we're seeing with uh, current, you know, man-inflicted climate change. Yeah. Talk about genetic rescue, because this is where yeah, so we, the science that you're doing is already being put to use. Yeah. So we work really closely with all of our conservation partners. Conservation works really well, but they need new tools in the concept of genetic rescue. So you're probably familiar with like the Northern White Rhino or some of these other uh, keystone projects around the world from a conservation perspective. But when you get down to dwindling populations, you need to use genetic engineering, genetic sequencing to find lost diversity, engineer it back into those populations so that you can create thrivable 
herds and populations that can sustain and not be bottlenecked and go into a uh, uh, genetic bottleneck that will uh, ultimately, uh, you know, actually destroy the herd, kind of like what we saw with the mammoths. The end of the, most people think that mammoths just died off at the end of the last ice age, but they actually, uh, uh, genetic bottleneck led to a lot of inbreeding and that caused the, the end of the mammoths uh, to, to die that way. So, yeah, I mean, I want to bring it back to the elephants because I, I love the idea that this is um, a real world example of what you're doing. And um, you have a toolkit where you're trying to establish effectively a genetic backup if we can call it that, of all living elephant species. And the reason is because, to your point, whether it's disease or tackling things, in the case of baby elephants in particular, it's it's, it's very poignant, um, perhaps to be able to um, improve the, the DNA to protect against that. Yeah, and if we can actually, you know, sequence a lot of different herds, kind of like the work we're doing with Deborah Stevens and the team in Botswana at Elephant Havens, if we can sequence the herds, use AI and computer vision to understand, you know, orphaned elephants and herd dynamics. We can not only, you know, build better genetically diverse herds through genetic engineering, but we can work to reintroduce them safer and better and and hopefully remove human elephant conflicts. And so really it's not just genetic engineering. It's not just AI. It's also incredible women and men on the ground in these countries kind of collaborating together and developing new tools, uh, both through genetic rescue and through, uh, additional assisted reproductive technologies in the field. You mentioned the magic word, or at least the magic word of the moment, which is AI. What difference is the use of tools tied to artificial intelligence, whether that's data analytics or even perhaps suggestions in what you're testing that perhaps your scientists wouldn't do um, and are making progress? What difference is it making? Well, you know, AI is, you know, for a while was just this thing, right? And now it's this paintbrush. I, I, I built several different AI companies before I started this company. And <laughs> AI is now this large paintbrush that goes across a lot of different things. So we're looking at not only using AI and understanding the differences between the Asian elephant genome and uh, the African genome and then the mammoth genome, but we're also using AI from, you know, studying all the different camera feeds we're taking from drones in the air to uh, cameras in the field to understand herd dynamics, track specific elephants, tie that back to their genetics so that we can look for what are the genotype to phenotype markers. And then, you know, that's just an immense amount of data that we can as humans process, unless we just have a thousand humans watching these videos. So if we can use AI to understand that videos, take meaningful insights and then, and then surface that to us as decision makers, as well as know our partners in conservation in the field well then we are better informed to make better decisions for animal care so i think there will be a lot of people watching this and we sort of did it in the introduction with the jurassic park theme that we'll be asking you if you ever watched jurassic park and i'm going to answer for you you did and you were enthralled as an 11 year old um and i think um the rest is history but and i know you've also spent a lot of time thinking about can i do this the other question is and i know you've ask yourself this too, should I be doing this? Maybe we've answered the question, but there are ethics involved here too, in certain aspects of this. No, you are 100% right. You know, Jurassic Park was a dystopian movie, believe it or not, people have asked us once or twice about Jurassic Park. Um, But fundamentally, you know, we are, as we talked at the the top of the conversation, we are losing species at an alarming rate. We need new tools and technologies. If we can use de-extinction, which is an incredibly hard project, and we can use and design a system that works to bring back these keystone species in 
can successfully rewild them, we can apply that and subsidize that and give that to conservationists in the field. And so fundamentally, you know, this de-extinction toolkit we think is not just helpful for de-extinction, uh, but absolutely critical for species preservation, given the current climate that we're in. And just for all the Jurassic Park geeks out there, you can't get DNA from amber, but that's not because you didn't try. And they also can't be, they can't be contained (laughs) by lysine dependency. So what I will definitively tell you is you cannot get (laughs) DNA from amber. It's very porous. It doesn't hold well. (laughs) Not that we've tried, but you can't. (laughs) You cannot do it. There are, you know, one of our, our top uh, uh, partners, Kenneth Lacavar, one of our advisors, is one of the top paleogeneticists in the world. And he's actually demineralized dinosaur bones and gotten amino acids. But that is wow. so far from what you saw in Jurassic Park. There's no blood. There's no genes. There's no DNA. Um, and so there's just amino acids. So unfortunately, the de-extinction of a dinosaur just currently isn't possible. Oh. But I, I don't, I don't put it past up. you to try. I know, I know. Um, very quickly, investors, because you have raised a lot of money. Top project from here on out, Ben. Yeah, so right now, you know, we've got three different teams running the Mammoth Project, the Thylacine Project, and the Dodo. And each one of those are, you know, massive teams. And then we even have a 17-person team that's working on ex development. And we think that while that sounds like insane science fiction, if we're successful in building these artificial wombs, we think that coupled with our de-extinction toolkit could be a complete game changer, not just for de-extinction, but also for species preservation. So, so those, are, those are a lot of projects going on at once. Dodo maybe, dino, no way. It's the end. <laughs> no, di- no, no, no dinos on the event horizon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for now for now great to chat to you ceo of colossal yeah. biosciences yeah. thank you sir more first me after this Welcome back to First Move. Shares of all three big automakers in the United States trading higher despite that historic strike beginning by the United Auto Workers Union General Motors in fact jumping what more than 2% in trade so far today. We'll continue to watch that. But here's more to carry on from what we were discussing earlier of what General Motors CEO Mary Barra told Arvanessa Yurkevich about what union workers are asking for as part of these negotiations. The union is demanding, asking for a 40% wage increase over four years. They're asking for that in part because they say CEOs like yourself, uh, leading the big three, are making those kind of pay increases over the course of the last four years. You've seen a 34% pay increase in your salary. You make almost $30 million. Why should your workers not get the same type of pay increases that you're getting leading the company? Well, if you look at uh, compensation, my compensation, 92% of it is based on performance of the company. I think one of the strong aspects of the way our compensation for our represented employees is designed is not only are we putting a 20% increase on the table, we have profit sharing. So when the company does well, everyone does well. And for the last several years, that's resulted in record profit sharing for our represented employees. And I think you have to look at the whole uh, compensation package, not only 20% increase in gross wage, but also uh, the profit-sharing aspect of it, world-class health care, and there's several other features. So we think we have a very competitive offer on the table, and that's why we want to get back there and get this done. 
But if you're getting a 34% pay increase over four years and you're offering 20% to employees right now, do you think that's fair? Well, I think when you look at the overall the overall structure and, and the fact that 92% is based on performance, and you look at uh, what we've been doing of sharing in the profitability when the company does well, I think uh, we've got a very compelling offer on the table, and that's the focus I have right now. Mm -hmm. Mary Barrett there. And finally, this is the final first move, but never fear, the team will be back later in the year with a new show right here on CNN. Most importantly though, it's been an absolute honor to start my mornings this way and to share this hour with you. So thank you for watching. Our goal has always been to inform, to provide context amid the noise, to hopefully enlighten you on what's to come, to be tough yet compassionate, and of course, to make you smile. In our world, the future is defined by innovation, optimism, and kindness. And these are core cool to some of the leaders we've chosen to highlight for you over the years. Here's some best bits. <laughs> okay, team, are we good to go? Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here is today's Need to Know. The change that we're seeing in our planet and our environment is crucial. We know that the poorest of the poor will feel the effects of this first and worst. That We, we know that will happen. Where are we now as you look ahead 12 months, Strong found Yes, strong foundation built in how you put AI through everything you do in your company, but in a trusted way. When you produce a fake video, even if you tell people that it's fake, even if they know before they watch it, it changes their behavior for reasons we don't fully understand. Um, my mom was a formidable force in my life and in, in, in my sister's lives. She taught me to run to keep up with her. She taught me to, uh, to be bold, take risks. I think people should take more risks. And I think a lot of human potential is left on the table because people are afraid to fail. That's what I love the most. Uh, going on tour, performing for my fans. Are you warmed up? Am I allowed to ask for a line? There's nothing that compares to a live concert with real people in front of you. Uh, Mrs. and Mr. Alva. <laughs> do you want to read, read the tease? All right, so Edison, Sabrina, thank you. Stay with us. More to come. You're going to get the change. Brilliant. Losing my job. <laughs> And for now, for the very last time, this was First Move. Time to go make yours. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 